I'm sorry that this is not as fun for you as it is for us. <laughs> or maybe it is, I don't know. How you doing? We got to meet with a lot of you today. Check in. The range of experience happening from breakthroughs and perhaps life-changing insights to breakdowns and perhaps the norm of confusion, feeling stuck, judgment, criticizing ourselves. A lot of people experiencing their first extended period of silent practice. More than just a few hours, but actually a couple of days. Interesting stuff, huh? Are you surprised with what you're experiencing? How many people have some sense of surprise? Different than you expected? One thing that is certain is that it's a gradual process of awakening for almost everyone. Rarely does it happen that we start and we have major insight and make any kind of lasting transformation. My experience was, is, that these retreats were really, uh, really are, can be just such a place of intense work, such intense inner work, sort of the idea of retreat. I was like, oh, it's quiet and relaxing. Beautiful Marin. I'm going to go chill out for a, a weekend. <laughs> Relax. Be quiet. Oh, that sounds nice, right? In the hectic busyness of our lives, of our schedules. And then we get here, and most of us realize, oh, this is... Hard work, this effort of returning the attention to the breath, to the body, sitting with pain, the inability to stop the mind, how disconcerting is that? 
I love Vinny's image, you know, this sort of... Isn't there a spirit rock channel around here? Can't we just plug in to the serenity channel? Nope. But as we continue to bring the attention back, as we strive, as we persevere, gradually making progress against the stream in this counter-instinctual relationship to pleasure, to pain, Eventually, leading to a sense of ease, of well-being, of moving from an intellectual understanding of impermanence to a felt experience of harmony with the constantly changing process of existence. Process, arising, passing. Eventually we come to see, at least in moments, the futility in resistance. The futility in trying to hold on to anything at all. It just isn't possible. And when we attempt, as we have all been doing our whole life, to defy impermanence, to hold on to the pleasant experiences, to resist and try to get rid of the unpleasant, unavoidable experiences, We create so much extra unnecessary suffering. But we're so addicted, habituated in our patterns of reaction, in our instinctual craving. in our misidentification, our identification that is misplaced on this body, on this mind, these emotions that come and go, taking it all personal all of the time. as self, as me, as mine, as I. That's the norm. Nothing wrong, right? It's not your fault. 
That's the way it is for us human beings. For us unawakened. Beings. We're identified. We're confused. And what's the bigger heartbreaker, right? Is that we're all doing and have always been doing the best we could with the information and experience that we've been given to find happiness no matter how confused we've been in our life, underneath that confusion, whether it was violence or drugs or abuse or whatever form our confusion has taken, there's always been this underlying desire for happiness. Search for meaning, for well-being. But we've been barking up the wrong trees. Most of us have confused pleasure with happiness. Going for the next short-term gratification. Chasing the next fix. in relationship, in food, in anything but reality. In anything but the way it is in the here and now. Looking outside, leaning forward constantly. This experience of craving, the second noble truth, the cause of all of our suffering, craving for pleasure, thirsting for life to be easy and pleasant all of the time, pushing away pain, running from pain, medicating it. Craving to not exist when it's unpleasant. Craving to exist forever. To hold on to. To have a permanent abiding and a pleasant state of being. It's not our fault. It's the way we are wired as human animals biological survival mechanism. And the confusion that has led to more suffering has just been our best attempt to navigate through life. It's a radical proposal to 
transform our relationship to this body, to this mind. And you're doing it. Each time you break the addiction to the thinking mind and consciously, intentionally redirect it to the direct physical experience. And as we expanded the instructions this afternoon to the tone of the present moment. Is this pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neither? Is it neutral? Breaking the habit of reaction and beginning to come into free will for the first time in your life. I propose that if you're not paying attention to the feeling tone of experience, you have no free will at all. You will do the same old habituated karmic momentum over and over and over. If you're not paying attention, you don't have the ability to choose whether you cling or push. You will just automatically do it. It's what we do. Around the cycle again and again and again. From moment to moment, and perhaps from lifetime to lifetime. But we have this precious opportunity in this moment, in this lifetime, to stop the cycle. To do this hard work, this treacherous counter-instinctual work of breaking the misidentification with this mind and body as ultimate self, of beginning to respond with friendliness, kindness, compassion to pain, our pain, our confusion. Enjoying impermanent pleasure. Caring about impermanent pain. Letting everything arise and pass naturally as it does. opening the foundations further to this process of mind itself, including the emotions. On two levels. One, tonight and tomorrow, beginning to bring closer attention to the process of mind. Just like every breath arises and passes, every thought arises from nowhere, dissolves into nothing, 
in a spacious awareness that we call our mind, that we're usually got in too tight a grasp on, relaxing the grasp, relaxing the attention, turning attention, turning the mind on the mind itself. I want to call it cognitive dissonance, right? Defying your own mind's misidentification. I know there's a bunch of psychology people in here, and you all know it's not really what cognitive dissonance means, but it sounds cool. Opening to this process of the mind. This is the place where you've already been like paying attention all weekend, right? Even though you're not supposed to. It's what we do, right? We're so addicted to our minds that we just think all the time and try to bring the attention back. But Actually using the process of mind as an object of meditation... bringing attention both to the process of thoughts, of thinking, and also to the content on some level, beginning to experience directly, oh, this is an emotion that arises in my mind. It's a thought that's connected with emotion, and it's experienced in my body like this. Tightness, warmth, pressure, tingling, Not like you don't know this already, but the mind and body are completely connected, right? Every thought has a physical manifestation, especially our emotions. The pleasant emotions we tend to get attached to, right? Love. generosity, kindness, tend to kind of be like, oh, I like that, let's keep that. The unpleasant, the negative, afflictive emotions, we tend to try to get rid of, create suffering for us. We're identified with it as personal. The Buddha referred to these negative, afflictive emotions as the experience of Mara, as this externalized figure in the Buddhist teachings. That's almost like a demon. The experience of fear, the experience of anger, the experience of craving or lust. And the experience of doubt, low self-esteem, self-hatred. It was through the Buddha's direct relationship with Mara, with the Mara aspect of our own mind, 
seeing through, seeing clearly that this mind, that these negative afflictive emotions were not permanent, were not personal, and were the cause of suffering if we're identified with them, if we're not coming from a place of wise relationship to the mind. And it was through the transformation of Sid's mind, Sid's relationship to his mind, that Mara was dispelled, that liberation was found. The three characteristics, seeing that even these negative afflictive emotions, even greed and hatred and delusion, were just mechanical process of the mind. Just what the mind does. If we're identified with it as personal, we suffer. If we're able to see it clearly as just part of what this brain and body experiences, no suffering, just impermanent phenomena. Even after enlightenment, Mara continues to exist. The mind continues to exist. Waking up is not a lobotomy. Bad news, right? Something like over 40 times um, in the traditional records of the Buddha's life. Mara returns, fear, lust, doubt, anger, confusion. Come back into the Buddha's experience. No longer identified, no longer attached, no longer aversive. Each time the awakened mind meets these experiences with clear comprehension. The Buddha replies, I see you for what you are. Impermanent, impersonal, unsatisfactory. I'm not going to take the hook. I see you. You haven't snuck up on me. I'm not identified with this. I know this is just what a mind and body experience. I'm not going to suffer about it. Of course fear arises. Survival mechanism. Of course. Of course desire arises. (coughs) Testosterone chemical chemistry in the body. Of course there's desire. Waking up this process, this gradual process, mindfulness, compassion, transforms our perspective, our relationship to the mind, the body, each other, reality. It does not 
destroy the mind. If you've come to meditation hoping that you won't be you anymore, bad news. On the relative level, you will have your conditioning, your relationship to your conditioning, to this mind and body, can be changed drastically. My father likes to say, enlightenment perfects the perspective, not the personality. There's still this personality conditioned. Still going to have those thoughts and feelings. Just not going to take the hook anymore. Not going to believe the low self-esteem the unworthiness. Not going to suffer about it anymore. Just a thought based on memory. It's arising. It will pass. I think that retreats are the best place to do this kind of work. Everything is in place to support us in going a bit deeper, seeing a bit more clearly our relationship to ourselves. And often it's not good news, right? Meditation gets us in touch with the truth. We see how attached we are, how aversive, how much judgment is constantly arising, how identified. Vipassana is often referred to as a purification practice. (laughs) What was it that you said about? Plunging the toilet. (laughs) The shit has to come to the surface first. I hadn't heard that one. That's good. Where'd you get that? Robbed it somewhere. (laughs) Right? You start paying attention to the body and the mind. First thing we see is how unkind we are. How uncompassionate. But it's from that awareness that we can begin to change. That we can begin to change our relationship to. That we can begin to meet that third judgment, right? You're sitting here and you mind wanders and you judge yourself. I'm a bad meditator. Shit, now I'm judging myself for judging myself. (laughs) And then you catch it on that kind of third or fourth level. Oh. Soften, relax. Can I be friendly to this judgment of judgment of judgment? 
and then eventually we catch it on the second judgment. And eventually we catch it as the mind judges without adding the layer upon layer of suffering. Can you accept Mara as a lifelong companion? Are you willing to accept that fear will continue? that the doubting mind is a developed protection. Doubts will continue. Our relationship to these things will change. Are changing, I'd imagine, for so many of you. And I say this out of direct experience, really. out of 17 years of being a half-assed meditator and the drastic transformation that has very gradually taken place. Drastic. (laughs) (laughs) Can I get a witness? What you got? I feel very protective of the group. I feel like we've been talking a lot and laying out some really big ideas, big concepts, far-sweeping foundations. And I don't want to say much more, you know? I get to a point where I'm oversaturated, where it's just like, let me catch up. Hold on a second. You're telling me (laughs) to include what in my attention? (laughs) You know? So tonight we're going to lay out the third and fourth foundations, and I'm still kind of like looking around saying, all right, y'all with me? Y'all with me? Yeah. (laughs) 
But that's where I'm at, not where you're at. I'll tell you what I'm in the mood for is some goddamn good news. So this third foundation, mindfulness of mind. You know, somewhere I got it in my head that this mind was my enemy. So now it's asking me to pay attention to what I don't like about me, right? And the best, I heard it put like this, that the consciousness, the mind that they're talking about is just consciousness of the state of consciousness, that you're just conscious of being conscious. Right? There's something happening. It's a process going on up there. It's just like a moment of knowing. But there's two parts to it. There's, there's the moment of knowing that consciousness is happening, and then what colors it, right? So maybe it's anger, so the world looks red to me. Maybe it's love, so it looks blue or whatever I think that looks like. It's kind of seeing our conditioning and how all our experience are seen through either rose-colored or shit-colored glasses. Stay with me. When we're not aware of how just our emotions can skew our perspective, then we actually think that's what we're seeing. That we don't have this filter on us. That this is the truth. And that's delusional. That's delusional. When I fell in love with my wife, the world looked beautiful. There was nothing wrong with that, but it's just not exactly true. Right? When I lost half my talk on Friday, (laughs) I can tell only a few of you have lost a talk. I was pissed. I hated the world. I hated this retreat. I hated my responsibility. And I was mad at my wife for creating so many folders on the computer. I see the world through what I'm going through in this fleeting moment. So what Noah was talking about is identifying it as myself, this misidentification that I am this anger. I was certainly pissed, but am I this? And is it going to go on forever? Right? So any mind state is transitory. So why are we taking all this shit so personally? 
you know, as he sat here and told me about all the bad news, it just felt like a bummer. It's like, man, I suck. Ugh. You know? But it's not personal. That's the point. And no matter how many times he says, it's just biological. Don't worry about it. I still hear it as. <sighs> it still feels heavy in my body to just try to get my head around all these complicated foundations. All I wanted to do is come and chill out. Why are you laying all this heavy shit on me? I'm actually waiting for an answer. <laughs> You want me to do the seminar story or you want to wait for the more? Yeah? So there's a story that kind of goes along with this. And it's about this samurai and this monk. And the samurais, you know, they were serious cats. And he rolls up on this little monk, and he's, you know, big and crazy looking, and he, this little defenseless monk, you know, little guy. And uh, he just, you know, commands him, teach me about heaven and hell. And the monk just looks at him in, in utter contempt. Teach you? I wouldn't teach you anything. You're filthy. Your sword is rusty. You're a disgrace to the samurai class. If any of you know anything about Japan and samurai culture, he insulted them beyond belief. And as he pulls his sword up to behead this defenseless monk, the monk says softly, this is hell. As he realizes what the monk did, which is basically risk his life to give this teaching, how compassionate he must be. It touched him deeply. And as he lowered his sword, the monk said softly, this is heaven. Can we see how whatever's present in our experience colors it? That's what the third foundation is to me. It's knowing that consciousness is happening and knowing that it's probably colored by whatever's present in my experience. Yeah. You want to take some questions? Feel free.
mind, body, excuse me, wrong order. You didn't say an order. <laughs> body, mind, feelings, phenomenon. that clear? The last one can be translated a bunch of ways, phenomena. But uh, we'll talk about that more tomorrow. I'll give you a little bit more detail. Okay. The first foundation, as we began with, is uh, bringing attention to the breath, the whole physical body, paying attention to the posture. One of the um, instructions that I don't think we gave is um, beginning to investigate the four elements within the body. The kind of fluidity or water element, the air, the breath, the solidity, the heaviness, and the heat, the fire element. Seeing that actually this body is just made up of the four elements. Just as everything everywhere in existence is some aspect of these four elements. Also, uh, we haven't practiced a lot with it, but Vinny talked about uh, in the first foundation, the investigation in this body of impermanence and death, the intentional reflection, contemplation of death as part of the first foundation of mindfulness, bringing attention and mindfulness, awareness to the truth that this body was born and will pass. Just like every thought, feeling, and sensation that comes into consciousness, passes. This body was born and shall die with the intention to get us to find a refuge, a place of safety that's not this physical body. Understanding that there's process going on here that's not just physical, that's a spiritual process. the different parts of the body, the skin and organs and investigating, you know, what's called the putridness of this body. We're so identified with this body as me, right? But it's just made up of all of these different elements and parts and pieces and so many of them are stinky. This beautiful, precious body. Smelly lump of flesh. Is that who you want to be? The second foundation we talked about a lot today. That with everything within this mind-body process, there's a tone. Pleasant, unpleasant. Neutral. Opening to the mind itself. Bringing mindfulness to both the process of the mind the contents, consciousness, the emotions, seeing the three characteristics of all of these. It's impermanent, ultimately not a solid, separate self within it, the mind or the body. And a lot of suffering, a lot of dissatisfaction in this mind, in this body process. And tomorrow we'll 
in the morning open to the fourth foundation, which is uh, just knowing what's true. What's true about this moment? Oh, I'm suffering. What's true about this moment? Oh, this is the experience of not suffering. Knowing the Four Noble Truths, suffering the cause, not suffering. Knowing the experience of generosity, of kindness, of compassion. A general, broader mindfulness of what's true. The Dharma, the truth of the present time experience. The phenomena that has arisen. Before we take more questions, I want to take it a step further. Vinny said he wanted some good news. I want to give you some good news. The good news is that when we do this work, when we change our relationship, we stop clinging to everything, we stop pushing, stop trying to control, when we stop coming from greed, attachment, aversion, hatred, and delusion, misidentification. When we focus on these bad news issues and we change our relationship to them, all that remains is loving kindness and compassion and a sense of appreciation and interconnectedness with the joy and pleasure and beauty that exists. Through changing our relationship and caring about suffering, our own and others, frees us from that eventually, moment to moment and eventually, and that all that remains are what are referred to as the uh, divine abodes, the beautiful spiritual dwelling places of coming from a place of care and compassion towards all pain and suffering, coming from a place of kindness and friendliness and love towards oneself and all beings in existence, and having full acknowledgement and appreciation for joy, sympathetic joy, rather the opposite of jealousy, right? You know, now sometimes when somebody's doing better than you, you kind of feel jealous. Can you imagine just your spontaneous, no jealousy, freedom from that, no identification with the jealous thoughts, and that what remains is just total celebration, appreciation. When we free ourselves from suffering, love is what remains. And in equanimity, a balancing wisdom that understands clearly that which we can and cannot do anything about, that understands clearly no matter how much we love each other, no matter how compassionate we are towards each other's suffering, ultimately we're powerless over others on the subtle internal attachment and aversion level. This balancing that understands, I can't make you let go. I can't make you wake up. Even the Buddha couldn't make people wake up. Can you imagine? 
how many hundreds, thousands of people heard the Buddha and weren't willing to do the practices to wake up? An enlightened Buddha there. And you kind of go like, yeah, yeah. That sounds too difficult. I'm not going to do it. Stick with the good news, bro. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I thought I was the green type. That was the good news. Robert. So I'm trying to get my head around what you're saying. So you're saying, how do you know the difference between an intellectual experience and uh, a real spiritual profound moment? Is that right? Right, right, right. You know, I got this strange way about me where I've had a a pretty challenging life like most of us, I would guess. And I think I've placed profound meanings on almost all of it, mostly in hindsight. You know, I think everything happens for a reason. And I'm blessed with that feeling because uh, it can kind of make sense of a really confused path, right? If it's all happening for a reason, I can trust on some level. You understand what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Is that clear? Yeah. I, was, I just wanted to get a little bit deeper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. May I? Yeah, please. Right away, my mind went towards, you know, the difference between a thought and an, a feeling, an experience of it. <clears throat> For instance, you know, that avalanche of sorrow that Vinny experienced on that retreat. Um, You know, he could have just kind of been sitting and saw it in the mind and kind of thought about it, right? Oh, wow, look at all that sadness there, right? The, you know, and could have easily done that. 
and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my, uh, we were actually on that trip together. And my impression of him, I don't know how long it had been since he'd cried like that. But, you know, it was kind of a controlled, tough male, right? Me too. Kind of like, I don't cry. Right? So, not just acknowledging it, but experiencing it. Letting it come through uncontrollable sobbing. Right? Profound insight, experience from the inside out of sorrow. Not just acknowledging intellectually, oh yeah, I've got some sorrow in here somewhere. Make sense? Does that fit? Thank you. (laughs) He's much more articulate, even about my process. (laughs) (laughs) And I had never cried like that before in my life. Interesting. I got another comment about that because he said it. On my first retreat, Jack Cornfield, my teacher, one of my teachers, I heard him say what Vinny said. Uh, your practice hasn't really begun until you cry uncontrollably. And I fucking hated him for that. Because I practiced for, sincerely, vehemently for years and years and years and years. And I had a lot of intellectual understanding about my suffering. But, and I kept digging, like, where's the tears, where's the tears? And they didn't come. And they didn't come. Until at least a decade into my practice. And so I kind of had this, like, having heard that, I kind of felt like, well, I'm doing something wrong the first whole decade of my practice, right? I haven't really begun yet, even though I'm sitting retreats and I'm going on pilgrimages, you know, I'm celibate, all of, you know, I'm like trying to do it all, I'm serious. But I always had this sort of back of my mind. Vinny's ahead of me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it fed, <laughs> it fed my doubt. It, felt, it fed my self-doubt, you know, of like, oh, well, I'm not doing it right or whatever. So I just want to kind of throw that out there. And, and Jack probably said, as I've said a couple times, as we'll say, you know, don't believe this stuff. Find out for yourself what's true for you in your own process. He probably said that. But I didn't hear that. I just heard... Practice really begins when you cry like that. It took me so long to get there. So um, whether the, I don't know if that's true or not. Actually, I think my, our practice begins when we start paying attention. For many people, there's a, a layer of grief that we have to go through at some point in the practice. Usually not at the beginning. Usually some way along the process.
I don't know, really. Um, I don't know what the most compassionate way is. Um, I, I think that just we respond the best we can. I mean, the first piece is, you know, seeing your desire for him or her to be different than they are. Right? And whatever sort of judgment there is behind it. Trying to, you know, kind of have that understanding that they are where they are. They're doing the best they can, however confused they happen to be. And our judgment certainly doesn't help. But our care, our kindness, our support, our encouragement without aversion, but just loving encouragement, may help. And more than anything else, I think that... Personally, the most important is for us to do, for you to do your own work to live as an example of the possibility of changing our relationship to the mind. How inspiring is that? When you know someone well and see them change. Then it seems much more accessible than some statue on some folklore Buddha, thousands and thousands of years ago, yeah, sure, he did it. You know, sure, she did it. You know, but when you have a Buddha in your life, it becomes much more accessible. So maybe that's the best thing you could do for your friend. Wake up yourself. No pressure. <laughs> I think we're out of time. Brother. We are just about out of time. Well, let's take her question. She was from earlier too, right? It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, there, there is a list for tomorrow. But there, was there one today? I think it just got posted. Tomorrow's interviews just got posted tonight, maybe when we came in. So it is up for tomorrow, yeah. And if you, great, good reminder, if you didn't have an interview today and you're not on the list for tomorrow, just come. Or if you didn't see the list today, still come. <laughs> So just out the doors here, the, in the foyer, on the left. And the first, there's a little bulletin board right on your left outside those doors. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Are you going to 
walk us through the process of how to do this good foundation, or was this it? In, um, <laughs> in the uh, in the morning at the nine o'clock sit, there'll be instructions given. For the no, but about the third foundation, are we we're about to sit right? Oh, well, yeah, no. We're about to walk. Super walking. <laughs> Tomorrow morning at the um, 9 o'clock, there'll be a guided meditation, which will include uh, the third foundation instructions. No, it was, it's good. You caught us. Enough, maybe. Just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.